0: Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brood Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brood Music, the music discovery app that streams better music for serious listeners. Here we explore and get to know the creators of that music. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brood Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brood Music artist.
1: We're here with multi-instrumentalist, producer, composer, and storyteller, John Mock. He is a Nashville studio player and producer, has toured the world multiple times as a sideman to some of music's biggest artists, and records and tours as an artist in his own right. Thanks for being here, John. Thanks for having me. So as uh, as Aaron listed some of your roles, um,
0: there's, there's uh, I think even more that we'll get into, but... Um, I want to kind of start at the beginning. Where did you get started in music and, and how did you end up in Nashville? You know, I, um, I got a guitar when I was 15. Uh, I lived
2: in, uh, Montville, Connecticut, which is in New London. And, um, I just started playing and just was listening, you know, a lot of music at the time, even on the radio it was like Jim Croce, James Taylor, Cat Stevens. So I was really into acoustic stuff and just kind of fell in love with it, you know, and kind of learned quickly. And, um, uh, and eventually I wound up, actually, although I wasn't into country music at all at the time, I had some friends that played in a country band and I just kind of started playing with them for fun. And I uh, was started playing electric, which isn't primarily, you know, what I was doing. But I got so into it that when that band broke up in Connecticut, I actually decided to move to Nashville because I had kind of gotten into country music for that last year and was playing a lot of electric and I was just kind of taken by it. So. Um, So that was what got me to Nashville. And What was the scene like when you arrived? You know, when I I arrived, the thing that was really cool about it is, I mean, Nashville's changed a lot since I've been here. I moved here in 85. So I've been here for, what, 36 years or something like that. Um, And it was still like, you know, there was, um, it was a bigger scene. There was more record labels. There was a lot of publishing, a lot more publishing companies that were actually paying their writers to write. And um, so there was this kind of whole machine where, you know, um, there were more records being made. So there were more producers that were hiring more different musicians and they all needed songs pitched and no songs had to be demoed. So there was like a whole lot of levels of areas that you could start playing from showcases live to like demo studio stuff to... Um, you know than to to doing you know masters on records and that that sort of thing has shrunk a little bit you know you get less labels and, and everything kind of shrinks all the way down so i would say when i moved to nashville it was it was a pretty fun uh time you know people that you met were all like you know mostly doing music for a living and you kind of got involved in things and there were just a lot a lot more doors open and a lot of uh, a lot of different areas, a lot more doors open and a lot more of a
1: variety of ways. Basically. And was your aspiration to be a guitar player or was it to do songwriting or anything you get your hands on? You know, at that point, it was really to be a studio guitar player
2: and um uh, you know, acoustic guitar primarily. And then um I had music I was working on writing, and I kind of had this dream of someday doing my own stuff. But I kind of put that on the shelf for a little bit, and I was just sort of caught up in. Uh, you know, just wanting to make a living as a musician um, in Nashville.
0: And so did you do a lot of electric stuff when you first got there? I, you know, I I did. Um,
2: uh, you know, when I first got here, they said, well, if you want to do studio work, like never go on the road, you know, just stay in town. And that, that was like the prevailing wisdom and probably still is. But I found that like, I wound up getting a gig with Kathy Matea playing electric guitar for her. And at the time she had a number of hits out love at the five and dime and, and different things like that. And she was on polygram and I auditioned, uh, and got that gig playing electric guitar. And what I had found was I actually got more studio work then. So even though I was on the road, um, it's like someone says, oh, we need an electric guitar player for this demo. And it's like, well, how about John Mock? And it's like, oh, well, who's he? Oh, he's this guy. He's in the town. He's good. But if they say, oh, he's that guy that plays with Kathy Matteo you know, with that red telly, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy. You know, so I huh, found yeah. that like, I you, you almost got some recognition where they could attach something to my name. It'd be, yeah, that guy that plays with Kathy now. Oh, that guy. Instead yeah, so of you just, had this credibility. who's Yeah. So I found that like, like doing the live work thing actually got me session work. You know, it was kind of, uh you know, what they sort of said not to do, but it was more about getting your name out there any way that you can, uh, would help, you know?
0: And then you had a, you, you had a big role on, on one of her hits that got you a, a different kind of, uh, exposure, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, uh, she did a song called Where Have You Been and it was about her probably maybe third or fourth hit, you know, that was like top 10 kind of thing, I think. And, um, uh, But it was classical guitar, and that happened because, uh, you know, that was written by uh, Don Henry and her husband, John Vesner. And so, actually, when they recorded that as a demo, um, I was playing some cello at the time, uh, just kind of messing around with it, and they had me come over and play cello. So I did like a a cello overdub, and then then when it came time that Kathy decided to record it, then they, they booked it where I was playing classical guitar because that was kind of a thing. I, I did a lot of classical guitar, so I played classical guitar on that. And then Edgar Meyer played like the cello uh, kind of stuff on his bass, you know.
1: And um, that was him. I, I thought I thought I recognized his uh, his sound. Yeah, yeah. Especially uh, for sixty years, she
2: heard him snore, and he's got you know he does that slide thing a lot, you know. Yeah. And he does that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of his signature. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave Pomeroy played like bass bass on that. Mm-hmm. And then and then uh, Edgar played the role of like what a cellist would do more, you know. Right. And uh, Matt Rawlings played piano on that and I played classical guitar. Now the, pia- um, the piano
1: part yeah. and the guitar part follow each other very closely. Was that something that you composed together or was that your part that he, that he worked out?
2: Well, what I did was when I knew I had to, you know, when I knew I was going in to play that, first of all, I didn't know what key she was going to do it in. So I actually worked out. Classical guitar part that I really like in three different keys, and between that and using a capo, I knew I'd like be prepared. <laughs> so,
1: wow, that's um, that that's a working guitar player. That's a working guitar player. Yeah. So one yeah. of the
2: one of the things that really worked out for the song, uh, guitar wise, was in the key of E, because uh, it gave you these like open strings and dissonant notes that were really cool. So when I got there and the song was in G, I just capoed up three frets, and yeah, we did that. Uh, I think we did three takes in it on it and kept the third take vocal and all just top to bottom. Um, so it was just kind of like a live recording in the studio.
0: So were people surprised that this electric guy with the red telly was, was, uh, doing the acoustic thing and you were in the music video too. So in a highly visible way. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of an interesting thing because people look at you as doing a certain thing. Like I had spent my whole whole life playing classical and acoustic guitar and that was really like totally in my bag and the electric thing I'd only been doing about a year before I moved to Nashville. But then people see you playing electric guitar and all, and you get hired for that. And then when you go to play something like acoustic, it's like, no, 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 this is actually what I really do. Yeah. <laughs> and so kind of can be hard for, for people to see you in more than one light, you know?
1: Was uh, your electric style uh, kind of informed by that background as, as being uh, somebody who tends to, to pick with the, you know, to pluck with the, the fingers on the right hand? Were you doing more hybrid picking and things that were more coming out of that tradition or are you more of a traditionalist for a country electric guitar? Oh, you know, my, my country, my
2: electric guitar playing, I mean, my acoustic guitar playing was a combination of listening to and learning and playing in bars and singing and playing solo. The music Mm -hmm. I love like the James Taylor stuff, Gordon Lightfoot. And that was the stuff that was the guitar style I played and everything. But I also um, studied classical guitar through that whole period. So that's kind of like how I learned guitar was across between classical guitar and these singer songwriters that I really loved and, and kind of mixing combining the two, which is sort of like what my style sort of wound up becoming. But when I started playing electric guitar, that was when Ricky Skaggs hit the scene and Ray Flack was that great electric guitar player from England that played with Ricky for a number of years. And Bruce Broughton was the steel player. And I was really taken by his steel playing and uh, Ray Flack's, electric guitar playing. So I kind of started by really getting into that. So when I played with this country band, uh, I was kind of playing that style, you know, using a Telecaster, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of like, um uh, like, you know, very much like a country, a country style, sure. you know? very different from what my acoustic playing was. And I kind of just really got into that, you know? And, uh, <laughs> it's so funny cause I stole a lot of Ray Flack's licks. And I remember the first, first gig I did in town, Ray Flack walked into the door. It was a I was playing with a band and it was at the old bogeys, I think it was. And uh, this thing called the chili shack. And sure enough, Ray Flack walks into there. I'd never met him. And I recognized him. And he walks in with his door and he pulls out his electric guitar and he starts playing with us. And so I'm playing on stage with Ray <laughs> Flack and I start playing solos that as I'm playing the solo, he's like looking at me sideways and it's like, Almost everything I'm playing, I stole. From him. <laughs> it's like now I just feel like an idiot. You Hopefully, know? you like, got to
0: take the first solo. <laughs>
2: yeah, I know. I know. Can you leave uh, this guy. <laughs> I know. It's like it's like oh, okay. I need to like come up with my own. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of had a style that was uh, influenced by that, but also pretty influenced by pedal steel playing. So it was a little different. <laughs> but he totally recognized the the key riffs that I stole from him, and then wow. you get into a town like this, and it's like. You know, I actually have to do my own. <laughs> but but, but, but he,
1: he must have recognized that that, that is the greatest uh, you know version of flattery is yeah. To, is to, yeah, is to plagiarize. And Ray and I became <laughs> friends. Yeah. Ray and I became friends and we played dual
2: electrics for a little while with Kathy Mateo and we were roommates. Huh. And, uh, oh, wow. And then, yeah, and then we, um, he uh, did a solo album and we wrote, uh, we wrote a piece together for that. That was electric guitar and classical guitar. And it was called "You Baroque My Heart," <laughs> and, yes. and he put that on his record. So I've <laughs> I've I've always loved Ray. Ray's a Ray's just a huge talent, best electric player to ever come through Nashville, and most people didn't even know it. You know, it's wow. just one of those you know real great players that um, that doesn't necessarily play like whatever producer wants him to. He's got his own thing. He's got recording Ray is like catching lightning in a bottle. You know, you just let him do his thing, and you get stuff that. You know, but if a producer isn't like hip to that kind of thing or doesn't hear it, you know, then, you know, then he doesn't get used as much. So he was kind of a, a secret weapon that not everyone knew about or utilized. You know. Huh.
0: Interesting. <clears throat> so you ended up doing, um, you know, continuing to do studio work and touring work mm-hmm. and adding other instruments as well. You played, you, yeah. you started to play tin whistle at some point, right?
2: Yeah. I went to, uh, uh, Ireland with Kathy Matea pretty early on and, um, And listened to Irish music there, and got like a tin whistle when I was there. And then a guy that Kathy was uh, dating at the time was Jerry Jones, who was a guitar builder, and um, and Jerry was friends with uh, with some of the guys in um, oh um, oh god the band with Baylor New Grass Revival, Mm -hmm. and so uh, uh, and Baylor was dating Mara. So I guess Mara had turned Baylor onto to some great Irish stuff and old Paul Brady stuff. And he turned that on to Jerry and Jerry turned it on to me. So I was starting to hear this, like I, you know, Jerry was turning me on to all this great Irish stuff. And apparently it, he kind of came through Mara who I wound up working with a few years after that. So I, I just really got into Irish music and started playing tin whistle just simply for the fun of it, because I was, I was taken by it. But then, you know, that was at the time when, Like the Titanic came out, and it seemed like that sort of more Irish sound was really popular. And then they started doing that in Nashville. So I found myself getting more calls for tin whistle than I did for guitar at that point. And it wound up kind of being a way for a few years that I probably made most of my living was just playing tin whistles.
0: So what was the first record you were called to play whistle on? Yeah, that was actually the Dixie Chicks
2: Ready to Run. Oh, yeah. And uh, that 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 came about that was the first thing I, well, oh, well, that wasn't the first, that was the first record that I played on that would have been on the radio. It's funny because Paul, I knew Paul through Jerry Jones at, at Jerry's shop and, you know, Paul's a great guitar player. And I was playing guitar exclusively then. So I knew Paul a little bit and, but, uh, I wrote a piece for the national chamber orchestra for the orchestra and tin whistle and fiddle and stuff. And, um, and Paul was dating someone in the orchestra who they've been married now for a long time, a, a, a violinist. And um, so Paul came to a concert and we did that piece where I played whistle. And it was like that same week that the Dixie Chicks were looking for someone to play whistle on Ready to Run. And then Paul heard me play it live like that same week. And it's like, oh, I didn't even know John played whistle. So he called me. And and then I went in and uh, and played that and concertina in concertina and bar on that record.
0: So, so that, that's how
2: so i did that what's
0: that so it was that typical you know sit on stage with an orchestra and get discovered for a major country hit <laughs> yeah. story yeah. That, that old story <laughs> yeah. yeah that old story of playing
2: playing tin whistle with the chamber orchestra <laughs> for an ice skating <laughs> thing and then <laughs> you find out getting called to play with the dixie yeah. chicks yeah. if
0: i had a nickel for every time someone's told me that story
1: that <laughs> <laughs> story.
2: It's so funny because after that happened, um, six months or so later when the Dixie Chicks were getting ready to go on tour, they were talking to Paul, Paul Worley. And he says, you know, do you know anybody we know? We want someone to come out and play like acoustic guitar, but also double on some other things and maybe if they would learn the tin whistle part to that song so they could play that. And then Paul says, well, you know, the guy that played tin whistle on your record is actually a guitar player. That was like, or he's his main bag. So I actually got the live Dixie Chicks gig from doing that session as well, and from Paul, um, from Paul telling them that I was a guitar player too. That's actually how that came about. And then I, I did
1: three tours with them. Wow. Was, was there some hot competition in the uh, Nashville tin whistle community? Yeah, no, like that wasn't. Yeager? That's <laughs> yeah. there, was, there was a lot more guitar players to compete
2: with, and there were tin whistle players to compete with.
1: Yeah, yeah. but but you're the double threat. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. And uh, and it, because I got into Irish music, I started playing concertina. And I started playing baron, so a lot of times if someone had like Irishy stuff to do, I'd be playing guitar, baron, concertina, and whistle on it.
0: It's interesting you mentioned growing up you were a, a James Taylor fan and and you know oh, learned yeah. kind of to play guitar like him, and so then years later you get into Irish music and end up playing tin whistle with James Taylor. What was that like?
2: Well, you know, it's really interesting because tin whistle playing the tin whistle opened up way more doors than anything else I had played. You know any artists that I that I played with like them and and did stuff with Dolly Parton too and different things. It was all because they wanted tin whistle, you know. Huh. So and of course James Taylor plays guitar on his records, you know. And um, <laughs> but but yeah, that was that was really nice. That that session, um, Mark O'Connor, I had known Mark a little bit, and he called me to do this, uh, record. Uh, well, it was actually like a soundtrack to this. Uh, PBS special on the American Revolution. I think it was just called Revolution. Mark had worked with James on the Copperline record,
3: mm-hmm.
2: so uh, so he actually brought James in to sing the song. So we had a, a session in Nashville at Oceanway, and the whole day the whole day was just laid out to do this one thing with James Taylor. So uh, yeah, we just kind of sat in a big circle and just sort of kept kicking around with versions of it, playing it live. You know, James, like, cuts I've, – I've been told by people that have worked with him, He this is kind of the way he does it. You know, he'll cut a song in a number of different ways. You know, so we, we cut this thing, I think, three or four completely different ways that day before landing on uh, what wound up being on the record, hmm. you know. And, you know, all the great ideas actually came from James. Like, the coolest ideas, the coolest chord change things. I mean, that was um, – that was a room full of great musicians. Not, I'm not saying that about myself, but you get Jerry Douglas and guys like that, you know, and like all these wonderful, you know, beautiful ideas that really made that song just all came from James. He was just, you know, he just had such great ideas. He was like, the, I felt like he was the best musician in the room, which is really nice about one of your heroes. You know what I mean? They say you should never meet your heroes, but right. you meet one of your heroes and he's a greater guy than you ever thought and a better musician than you even thought.
3: It's a really nice thing. She sold her rock, and she sold her reel. She sold her only spinning.
1: That's great. That's you know one of the. There's been a, several moments in this last couple of weeks of listening to your um, to your recorded work, uh, where I've, I've i realized like oh my god I, I I've been listening to this tune for years and I love this one and that and the Johnny has gone for a soldier is one of those mm. tunes where I was like oh, oh my god it? that's that's, great. that's a song that like has been a part of my sonic experience for a long time and that as soon as the whistle comes in I'm like oh that's That's you. (laughs) It was, that was a fun
2: session because I, I got, I got there and I had my whistle case and, and, um, and I saw James in the corner talking to some people and I was on the other side of the room and I opened my case and was kind of nervous and just sort of getting things ready. And he walked over to me and shook my hand and introduced myself He said, hi, I'm James Taylor. It was everything I could do to not say no shit. (laughs) But he was just a And I'm sure I need no introduction.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. because you know who I am,
2: James. (laughs) But but it was funny uh, because he was looking at my tin whistles and I said, because the last record that he had out uh, had a tin whistle part on Enough to Be On Your Way, I believe. It might have been that song. Um, And James played the whistle part in it. And I, and I says, yeah. I says, on your last record. And I said, you played tin whistle on it. And he laughed and he says, yeah. He says, there's 12 notes in it. And I had to comp it from 14 different takes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I always thought of the, the, the tin whistle as being just one, one particular type of whistle. Uh, one of my favorite uh, tracks uh, off of uh, the, I think it's off The Keeper's Companion is The, the Abbott's House. Oh yeah, the low whistle. Low the low whistle, which I'd never heard that before. It's it's a yeah. it's a it's a haunting uh, timbre.
0: speaking of The Abbott's House and your solo albums, The Day at Sea and The Keeper's Companion, um, obviously, you can tell from the titles, there's a maritime theme there. How did you Mm -hmm. get started? Uh, You know, you mentioned early on, you kind of dreamt of doing your own thing. How did you circle back um, from all that you were doing and and focus on doing that? Well, you know, it was kind of based on
2: homesickness because I grew up um, uh, in New London, Connecticut. Next town over is Groton and then Mystic and then Stonington. And these are all places like twenty minutes from where I grew up. My father worked on the water, worked on the ocean. Um, uh, he was a uh, well, he was in the Coast Guard for for a long time, and I don't remember him being in the Coast Guard, but that's why he moved. That's why they moved to Connecticut. My whole family is from New York, even my brother, but my dad was stationed in Connecticut in the Coast Guard in New London, and that's when I was born there. So, and then my after he retired, he worked as a, a, a first mate on a ferry boat. It was called the Mystic Isle It went from New London to Block Island. And I would, me and my brother would go on trips and just play around on the ship. Kind of like, it's almost like we had the ship to ourselves on a lot of these evenings and stuff where there weren't many passengers. It was basically a passenger car ferry, small one that would take people over that lived on Block Island from New London. And, uh, and then of course I always loved Mystic. I remember hearing the Shantymen, uh, different men, play concertino and sing in Mystic. And, um, I just love being around the ocean. And it's like when I moved to Nashville, um, I really realized how much I missed it, how landlocked I felt. So the music I started writing, which I wasn't writing in Connecticut, um, once I moved to Nashville, I sort of started writing this music out of homesickness. And I even kind of took up the concertina out of homesickness. Because even though like concertina is an Irish music, my style of concertina playing was more what they call the nautical style. And that was the the stuff that I had heard uh, the Shannon men play in Mystic. So yeah, what got me into that whole thing was really, it was all born out of homesickness. And then I just kind of fell into that music too.
0: And so did you find that you could fill that void um, successfully with the music? Did it, did it really make you, bring you closer to the ocean?
2: It Yeah, it really did. Um, and it made me, it made me look at, you know, cause if you're writing instrumental music, um, for, for me, at least, it's almost like there has to be a story behind it to inspire me. and so um so I started looking more into I mean not only my own history but the history of that area and in New England in music and anything from like the whaling days on up, you know and um uh, so i I kind of learned more about where I was from
3: hmm.
2: and uh, and eventually my actual kind of uh, connection to it family- wise you know that i wasn't even aware of but but i kind of it's I, I started getting interested in that once i was here yeah so it brought me closer not only through the music but through through the studying and being interested in the history and learning more about it and then of course i would go up there and visit and um just you know spend all my time like at mystic noank and then up in maine and um, some beautiful places in Rhode Island, so I just, I just kind of would
1: take more trips up there. What was your and, family's uh, connection with the uh, with New England maritime? Well, uh, it's interesting because uh, the connection
2: with my with my dad from working around it was one thing, right? But the other connection was a, a, which I didn't find out until much later in Nashville. I never knew from my parents, but I have a friend uh, Linda Tidlo who's a genealogist, and she started looking up my ancestry and I didn't know anything about it. But Hugh McBride was my great grandfather. He was from Ireland, uh, probably Donegal. And then, um, and then the family during the famine traveled to um, Liverpool, England. And then from there, uh, took a clipper ship over to America and settled in Brooklyn. And um, he was a musician. He was a trumpeter in the army. And he was also a, um, uh, a sailor and would go out to sea and, uh, you know, during the you know, during the turn of the nineteenth century or, you know, about nineteen hundred, late eighteen hundreds into nineteen hundred, he was actually working off of ships in the uh New York's um South Street Seaport. Yeah. So he actually like worked there. You know, there there were like old paintings that I love that I have on the on the walls from like South Street Seaport at that time. And then I years later I found out my great grandfather actually worked there. You know. And he was a musician. I'm not oh, wow. really sure. In the army he played uh Uh, trumpet uh, and bugle but what they did was uh, they took kids that were good musicians to begin with and then they would have them learn one of those instruments uh, when they joined the army so he he wouldn't have played trumpet or bugle like in the street
1: but he might have played concertina or a fiddle or who knows so this 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 whole thing with the, uh, the 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 nautical theme and the irish roots this was Uh, in your blood, literally, but uh, you kind of discovered it very late. Uh, Yeah. Because I, I didn't find out about Hugh
2: until years after I was, you know, well into this kind of music and doing it. I mean, I started doing this stuff when I was in my twenties or thirties and I was like, I was like 50 when I found out about Hugh. Um, And it was just kind of satisfying. It's like, wow, all these things that are important to me, he actually did, Yeah, you know, like, hundred years ago (laughs) yeah, it's pretty
0: easy to imagine him at sea with a concertina or something
2: (laughs) yeah i know it's pretty it's pretty wild so that that was just kind of a nice it was almost like a it was like a gratifying thing it's like well maybe there is like a genetic memory in your genes or something i don't know
0: we're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor which is us Craft brood Music is a curated streaming service that streams better music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. There are a couple of ways to hear more Craft Music. You can download the app from the app store or Google play and get a free trial, or you can become a patron of the podcast on Patreon linked in the description of each episode and get exclusive bonus episodes containing extra music and a sampling of our other artists. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations. And we split our income with the artists craft music, better music for serious listeners to hear samples and find out more about us, visit craft music.com.
1: The, uh, the concertina, uh, you know, it's it's definitely capable of this joyful sound with the the waltz feel and those you know the kind of like Irish jig melodies. Mm-hmm. But I think it's exceptionally powerful as a kind of uh, very dour funeral dirge kind of instrument. The the tune I you know. play called "For Those Lost at Sea" mm-hmm. I found yeah. haunting. Oh, thank the, you. The sound yeah. of that instrument. Yeah,
2: it sounds good in minor. The other thing that's really nice about a concertina is. It's a really limiting instrument, like way more so than a guitar. And of course, a guitar is way more limiting than, say, a piano. So there's only so much you can do on a concertina, so you have to work within the limitations of the instrument. But because you can sustain notes, it's like of all the instruments that I play, it's the only one where you could say, play two or three contrapuntal melodies and they can all sustain at the same mm-hmm. time. you just limited, you really you really you can't just write anything like I would for strings. And then have that. It's got to be geared toward the concertina, but but it's an instrument that's capable of doing that, and that's one of the exciting things about it. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's such a nice multi-timbral instrument for counterpoint and sustained line. You know.
1: Do you find because uh, I mean I I am definitely someone who conceives of music on the guitar. I think of harmony through a guitar player's perspective, which is a little warped, because you're built in mm-hmm. fourths. But as you learned these other instruments, uh, and you have a, a wind instrument, you have a key instrument that's that's a pump, and suddenly you're. Transcending the confines of the guitar mm-hmm. uh, as a as a songwriter and a creator of music, did you find that that expanded your your melodic and your harmonic sensibilities? Well,
2: yeah. You know, an interesting thing was though. You know, before I could play guitar very well at all, <clears throat> when I first got the year that I got a guitar, I we I went to a public school, Manville High School. And they happened to have this great teacher who they had theory. I was like one of, I think, four students in theory class. So I learned like music theory and arranging and and counterpoint and harmony, like before I could actually play an instrument very well. So I sort of taught myself guitar while, like I taught myself all my chords on guitar by just figuring them out theoretically, you mm-hmm. know, with theory class. So, so I kind of always looked at like music is the big picture and guitar. It's like, okay, now I can do this on guitar. But if you take up another instrument, the part that never changes is the theory and the counterpoint and what you do. So it, it never really felt like learning a new language. It felt more like learning a new accent, hmm. you know, on the language <laughs> that I already knew. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so I kind of always looked at harmony and counterpoint from, um, you know, from the music I heard and, and the theory that I had studied. Um, so I had two, th- two years of theory in high school and then in my senior year, My teacher just gave me his, um, um, uh, his college books on species counterpoint and stuff like that. And I did an independent study. So I had like three solid years of theory before I went to music college. And that really shaped like how I was playing the instrument and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So I kind of didn't look at guitar as much like the harmonies that were done on it more than I looked at like the big picture of what harmonies and counterpoint is and how do I do that on guitar now? And then, how do I do that on Constantine and now within these limitations?
1: And early on in uh, in Nashville, were you getting calls for string arrangements and orchestration? Or did that come later? Yeah, that
2: came, uh, you know, that came a little later. What I did was I had a few pieces that I had written. Um, I remember that was when I, the first piece I wrote was Joshua's lullaby that had strings on it. And then I wrote um, uh, a That's couple of gorgeous at the same time. Oh, Beautiful. thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And um and then I, I wound up recording um, uh, at, at the studio that Kathy Matteo records with Mark, uh, Mark Miller, the engineer, and Alan Reynolds, the producer who, who ran the studio. They, they basically just gave me the studio time. And my friend Chris Wilkinson, um, I had uh, Jim Grosjean, David Davidson, and uh, I believe uh, Byron Bach, who was my cello teacher at the time, uh, just came in and played for nothing. I was broke, you know, and I did these three pieces um, on two inch tape. And that was kind of like my demo reel then. So I got some work from that. Like as people would hear that it's like, Oh, Hey, we're doing this, you know, folk thing. Um, you know, we'd like you to put strings on it, you know, and it just kind of, you know, word spread a little bit, a little bit that way. Um, and then, you know, I, I did some quartet stuff for Kathy Matteo. and I did some of her symphony charts early on. And, um, so it just kind of kinda of grew that way. But I, I, I love string writing. Yeah, I really do.
0: And several of your pieces for orchestra now have been uh, published and are being played by high school orchestras around the country. Um, I guess mm-hmm. probably, I'm, I'm sure, on the strength of those melodies and on that theory uh, that are in those oh, pieces. Well, thanks. Yeah,
2: I, I like writing really melodically and and having everything count, but I also kind of like a simplicity. It's almost like um, uh, no matter how complex of an orchestra piece I might write, Underneath it all, it's like a song, you know, cause to me, I grew up listening to songwriters. Um, you know, I grew up listening to Cat Stevens and James Taylor and I listened to Bach a lot and all that, but my, but the way I write orchestra, I think, um, even if it was complex, it wasn't complex in terms of that it was difficult for someone to play. So, uh so for like the the school orchestras i think it works because i'm not writing for the school orchestra i'm not writing for kids at a certain level or anything like that but just the stuff that i write anyway um happens to work for you know for a a a college orchestra or a high school orchestra as well you know
1: particularly on um on the keepers companion album uh, there seems to be a a theme of stating the song uh, either on the guitar, the mandolin, or the tin whistle, and then the orchestra kind of comes in and recapitulates that again. Mm-hmm. But it, it 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 kind of illustrates how the the song is fundamental to it. In the end, you can put right. all these gorgeous, lush arrangements in there, but at the core of it, you still have this this very pretty tune.
2: Oh well, thanks. Yeah, like even the whistle things, it's like, um, um, I I write them, um, like four of the rounded hills. I mean, when I'm, when I'm composing something, um, there's some things I compose with like orchestra in mind from the outset, but for the most part, whatever instrument I'm playing, like in that case, the tin whistle, uh, in the same with the Abbott's house, I, I actually just like, if I was just sitting and had to just play this by myself on a whistle, that has to be enough, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then, uh, orchestrating, you know, allows you to do more with it and all that. But the, but in the end, it's like that solo part has to work just as a solo part too,
0: so, yeah, but thank you. And you're telling stories through these these melodies and this instrumental music, but a lot of times uh, they're based on real stories as well. Um, one that intrigued me yeah. was The Fisherman and the Selkie. Do you want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how that piece came to be and what it's based on?
2: Yeah, well, um, I started, um, you know, kind of in in studying and, and I just love like uh, the traditional Irish stories. And uh, uh, one of them being... Uh, Uh, what a selkie is. Um, and I won't go a little long-winded, but, but basically it's a, it's a seal. Um, but it's a seal that can, uh, change to human form. Uh, so almost like a mermaid idea, except seal woman, and and there can be male uh, selkies as well. But, um, usually the stories involve a woman. They usually involve, uh, a fisherman and a love story, uh, and all that. And, and, Selkie's are very magical creatures. So when I was studying different selkie stories, uh, it inspired me to write um, that piece, the fisherman and the selkie. And the thing that I I kind of didn't intend at the time, but but really wound up working out was then when I started playing the music live to tell a selkie story, a traditional selkie story, and then say it inspired this piece, and then play the piece. Um, it really worked well, you know, because it was instrumental music, but it's almost like you were giving them. The story ahead of time, and then they that kind of informed how they heard the piece, you know, Um, almost like as if it was a lyric to it.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, but staying with kind of the interplay of words and music, um, you producer as well. I've produced a number of artists, including the country star Sylvia. Um, mm-hmm. And on her recent albums, have some songwriting credits. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, that started with the All in the Family record. And, um, and basically what started happening was, is, you know, she had mentioned a, a number of times, you know, like she liked my instrumental music. And um, it was you know do you ever think of writing something that I could sing to you know um, Tom Schuyler around that same time before before that album came out had called me up and wanted uh, to write a song and put lyrics to Joshua's Lullaby which he did and it was it's beautiful um, it hasn't been recorded he just he sent me like a demo of it you know huh. and so it's kind of like I think I think because my music writing was more songwriter influenced than anything. Um, Uh, It kind of felt like that. So when I started thinking about writing something for someone to sing, uh, sometimes I'd start writing a piece, and it's like, you know, I really like this, but it feels more like a song that needs to be sung than an instrumental. So then I'd record it and hum the melody and then send it to Sylvia, and uh, she would write a lyric or she would get together with Tom and they would write a lyric together on it. So there were a few songs, maybe four, I think, on the All in the Family record. And then on this new record that's about to come out of Sylvia's called Nature Child, Uh, we wrote, I think, about five together on it. And I'm really proud of all those songs that we've written together on both of those records.
3: Father and me On the day I became his Bride With uncles and Cousins and aunts Homemade biscuits And chicken fried The Recipe It's all In the family
2: it's really nice because i like i said i the only reason i i kind of didn't become a songwriter myself is i could never sing i mean i could sing okay i could i could sing in tune but i never liked the sound of my voice so i was kind of always working on the instrumental side of things but my passion was like sing a songwriter music so it's kind of nice to to be involved in the music side and working with great songwriters yeah
0: that's a interesting intersection it is that sort of um a demonstration of your of the way you work with artists as a producer? Is there a, that kind of collaboration there often? Yeah. Sylvia is the only artist that I've, um,
2: uh, and with Tom Schuyler, uh, written music uh, for a, a record that I was also producing. But it's sort of like trying to collaborate with the artist to do the record that they really want to do. Um, and you can lend what your abilities are to it, you know? I kind of never went for the, you know, <laughs> like a producer that produces a record and like every record they produce sounds like them instead of the artist. Yeah, yeah. And it, the thing is, there are some great records. I mean, God, there are some great records that are made that way. But for me, I just never really, that never really interested me that much. It was it was more interesting to kind of help somebody um, with a clear vision of, of what they wanted to do, you know?
0: Well, it always ends up, so from what I've heard, yeah. as being really exquisite. Productions and um, oh, thanks! You know, really beautiful stuff. And so, in this past year, you know, you've you've not been able to have people come to the studio. Have you gotten into any of the, um, you know, remote recording and having people send in files that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, I've always done uh, some of that. You know, because uh, before COVID, there was still a bit of that going on, particularly in the last like ten years. You know, people didn't have you go into studios as much as they wanted to send you files, particularly if it was someone that you had worked with enough and they trusted you and kind of knew what you would do. Um, so that kind of started earlier, but, but since COVID, of course, that was then became the way that for a while the only way you could record. Um, yeah. And then there's some, uh, uh, there's some other clients uh, from the internet, uh, which my manager lovingly helped me find and, um, uh, where, where, you know, where like clients can hear your work, you know, people can hear your work um, uh, online through this site and decide they want to work with you. Either they want you to engineer something or they want you to play something or they want you to like play on it and produce it and all that. So different things uh, since COVID have been coming in, a few different artists, a number of songs um, from doing that. And that's that's really nice. You wind up working with people, you know, there's one from Germany. Uh, uh, One guy who's really good was from Morocco. Huh. And so it's kind of people from, from all over and, and what, the, what they get to is, I mean, not just me here at my studio, but also like being in Nashville, you know, if they need fiddle they need upright bass, they need, you know, you know, various things like that. There's just so many great players here, you know, that you can bring in a great upright bass player. You can bring in a great fiddle player. Right. And a, cause a lot of people don't really have access um, to that. You know, not many people in different parts of the country have access to like one of the world's greatest fiddle players (laughs) that could come in and play on the, you know, Andy Leftwich or Stuart Duncan or a guy like that, you know, can come in and play on something.
0: Yeah. So they can find uh, you, decide they trust you and you can open the door to all those players for them. And and I can open the door to those players. Right. Yeah.
2: It's funny because a lot of people, I think they think like, um, oh, well, I'm just like doing these songs. I don't have a record deal. None of these guys would even want to play on my stuff. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't really work that way. These... These guys, they're great players and a lot of them are famous for it, but they, they have to make a living. You know, they, they play on records, you know, like they might, you know, they might, Stuart Duncan might play on a, you know, Robert Plant or a James Taylor or, you know, Dolly Parton record, but then, you know, you'll, you'll, play a demo for somebody you know the next the next day because he still has to eat that month you know (laughs) so i think i think it's a surprise to people um out of town that they that famous you know great players like that will play on their stuff and it's like no 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 that they need to make a living you know they'll be as musical and beautiful on what they're doing on yours as they would a james taylor cut you know
0: so and so of of all the things that you do do you like doing all of it are you kind of happy with the mix that's established over the years
2: yeah it's kind of a nice uh, it's kind of a nice mix if i'm playing if i'm playing live and playing solo or traveling around and, and, and doing that it's um it's my own music and all that and there's a there's a, a certain um thing that feels good to me to be doing that and putting that out there but it's also you're kind of on your own you know if things go badly you don't have a band member to roll your eyes with <laughs> or at <laughs> yeah, or at. If, if people, if people don't come to the gig, yeah, it's on you. You know, if I'm playing like my whole life has been playing with other artists, I don't even pay attention to like how many people showed up or not. And it, and it doesn't really have much to do with what my job is, but then you go play in your solo and, and like they set up all these chairs and like six people show up. <laughs> That's like a whole level of stress that, that you didn't have playing with anyone else. So, um, so in a lot of ways, working with other people and doing, uh, recording and stuff like that is, is less stressful and easier, you know, but, but when you're playing your own music live, you are doing your own music, you know, you are telling your own stories and, and, uh, it do, there doesn't have to be a lot of people there to, um, to make a connection and to have that feel like really worthwhile.
0: Thank you for listening. Craft Brood Music, both the podcast and the streaming service, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Secondly, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.